Hello, I'm Ben Keane, your host, and you're listening to a Virgin Startup podcast produced with support from our friends at Virgin Money. This podcast is a recording of a meetup which took place in April 2021 during the pandemic. This episode was all about how we build better businesses which have a positive impact on society and does more than just create value for shareholders. Purpose-driven startups are driving a wave of change in business. And this episode explored how and why this change for the better is taking place. Joining me on the night were Oddbox co-founder Emily Van Popperingi, Ashita Cabra-Davis, founder of fashion rental platform By Rotation, and Richard Johnson, who helped build the first community of B Corps. If you're a founder with a passion for change, as I know many of you are, you're going to want to grab a notebook for this one. Remember, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We always love hearing from our wonderful community. And I'm really excited to uh, welcome to the stage Emily from Oddbox, Ashita from By Rotation, and uh, we also have Richard from uh, the B Corp uh, community and the world. Emily, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Richard is here. Look at this slick time. Good hey evening, Richard. Hi. Good morning to uh, where people are going to join us from all sorts of different time zones. Um, good to see you here. How should we think about the, the the questions are all coming in? I haven't had a chance to ask mine yet. Jeez, we're going to cram it all in. Um, and I know Sheeta is going to be joining us any moment too. So what I thought where we could start um, is sharing some stories. Always good to start with the stories. So Emily, um, I've been following Odd by, Oddbox from its early days, but I've only really heard and seen the story through the perspective of your co-founder uh, and, and husband Deepak. And I remember very clearly he, him sort of telling me one day about uh, what you were doing and how you were going to the local markets in East London and, and sourcing this misshapen fruit and veg and trying to do something with it. And he was trying to actually work on something else, a fitness business. And and the fitness business was going okay, or, or he was building a community around it. And he, and I said, Deepak, are you getting momentum here? He said, yeah, I don't know all about the business model. And I just keep seeing what Emily's doing and and, it, and he just kept talking about you. And I said, well, I know you love her. She's your wife. But you seem to be talking about her, what she's working on quite a lot. And he's like, yeah, I think I, I, think I might try and see if I can help. So that's the, that's the version of the beginning of the odd box story that I have heard. Um, does it, wh what's your version of it? Yeah, and uh, that's, that's exactly that, Ben. So uh, no disconnect between what you heard from Deepak and what, uh, what happened. Uh, uh, actually, kind of the way it happened is that... Uh, um, so uh, I'm originally from France, uh, Deepak is from India, and so for us, uh, we're not, uh, uh, we've been in the UK for over 10 years, uh, but uh, uh, one thing we uh, noticed when we came to the UK is that it's amazing, you can see everything available all the time, so you can get strawberries uh, in the winter, uh, but it doesn't ne necessarily taste amazing, and mm. I think uh, the idea for Hotbox uh, came from a bit of that frustration. My grandparents are uh, potato farmers. I, I grew up in the countryside, so I'm quite connected to seasonality and how uh, food is grown. And so uh, uh, actually, like probably a lot of people in the audience, I've got a corporate background. I, didn't, uh, I don't come from the produce industry beyond kind of, uh, having grandparents uh, who were farming the land. Um, uh, but uh, I love uh, food. 
uh, and I've I've also always wanted to do something uh, something good for the planet. And so uh, so the the idea for Oddbox actually came from doing a bit of research. Came from uh, going on holiday in Portugal and uh, going to the local market, uh, seeing these uh, ugly looking tomatoes which tasted amazing, and uh, really kind of uh, that. Uh, uh, remind me, reminded me of uh, the, f- the initial days in the UK and that frustration. And that's when I really went uh, and uh, looked into the issue of food waste. And that's when I realized uh, how big uh, the issue was, w- of food waste was. And so when uh, I, sta- I started, it was re- very small. It was just a small pilot. And Deepak was involved from the start uh, because uh, uh, we had to go to the wholesale market to get the, uh, the produce. We were actually packing the boxes there uh, in the parking lot of the wholesale market. And, uh, and because I was still working uh, full time, we were doing that on Friday overnight and delivering Saturday early morning. And uh, uh, Deepak had quit his job. He had joined the Escape the City program to build uh, his own startup. And so he had more time and slowly he became kind of more and more and more and more involved uh, in Outbox uh, because it was quite heavy in logistics. You recruited your husband to help you get it going. It was a great move on your part, Emily. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to just, just dive in a little bit more to the story um, at the beginning there because you said you saw these ugly tomatoes in the market in Portugal. What's your motivation then to like, was it the curiosity then to say, oh, I'm curious about the problem of food waste. Why are these delicious but misshapen tomatoes being sold? Hey, Ashita, welcome. You made it. Hey. Good to have you here. Yeah. Um, why, are these, why are these being sold here but not elsewhere? Were you thinking, hang on, there's a business opportunity here? Or were you thinking, there's a problem to solve here in terms of, of waste, food waste, or were they kind of linked together? Like what triggered you to, to do? Cause I think a lot of people see these, observe these problems, but then don't necessarily act on them. What was dry, what drove you to act? So I think I saw the problem. And then at the same time, there was a, a French supermarket who did a campaign on uh, ugly fruit and veg. And I, uh, uh, and then when I did a bit more research, I saw two startups in the US who had started something very similar to Oddbox. So actually, Oddbox was inspired by these two startups. So it was very much kind of, I didn't innovate in terms of the solution. I just replicated something that I saw in the US, which seemed like a good solution to that problem. And... Um... Just try and I know so much has happened in those what is it th- five years? Five years. But but try and so you've so you were you were sourcing the veg from the local market in East London and you were selling it directly to what uh, restaurants? No, so we uh, we started very much uh, B two C. So when we started, we were going to the wholesale market, mm-hmm. um, and uh, actually when we started, we had only twenty customers. Half of them were our friends. And half of them were uh, our neighbors. So we had printed a few leaflets uh, that we distributed ourselves uh, in the streets around our flat. Uh, and also because uh, we were doing the delivery with our own car and it could only fit uh, 20 boxes. So that was kind of the limit before we had to think about how we, can, we could get uh, other uh, delivery drivers to, uh, to help us. So it was very much... Um, I guess because we came uh, from 
corporate background, we didn't have many entrepreneurs in our uh, network. For us, it was, uh, let's just uh, try it. We, we didn't think about it as really a business. It was, uh, can we, uh, can we try it for six weeks and see how it might work? And we didn't have branding. We didn't have anything. We just did everything ourselves at the start. And actually, we had just bought unbranded boxes. We, we had some stickers printed. And that was uh, the state of, of our brand at the start. I think this mindset and approach to it as a project, let's see, let's see what happens, is something whenever I hear about success stories, this is, this is replicated. It's not this, we're going to solve the problem of food waste, which I think with a lot of purposeful businesses, you don't necessarily appreciate the scale of the problem. Like food waste, as, as, you know, as an observer and someone that's curious about it, but not someone who's running it, is like a, a globally, it's just a huge problem that impacts environment, social inequality, so many different aspects of, of life, right? And do you feel like if you'd been fully aware of the scale of the problem and the challenges that you would have gone ahead with that experiment? Because this uh, seems to be where a lot of people who are like, I want to s- tackle this problem world stop because it feels too overwhelming. Yeah, I, I don't think we thought about that. We just thought, can we make a small difference? And actually, if, if mm. we had been from the produce industry or if we had known how things work, we probably would never have launched Oddbox because we realized that uh, at the start, we were just so small that nobody wanted to uh, talk to us. So I would contact growers. First of all, I didn't know any of the language. So I mm. was just talking about uh, wonky fruit and veg. For them, there's nothing like uh, wonky fruit and veg in their, in their uh, language, in the industry language. And so I, I was just, uh, they, yes, they just kind of dismissed my idea. They probably had been contacted by a few people before who had a similar idea. Outbox was not uh, a new or, or innovative idea. And tell us where you where you'd got to with the business at the start of so just before the pandemic, so in early 2020, and then what's happened in the last 12 months? Yeah, so um, in uh, so for the first so it's been five years that we launched Oddbox. Uh, very much we started in South London because that's where uh, we were living. We very uh, slowly expanded. So we were in South London for a long, for the first uh, two and a half years. Then only we uh, raised a bit of investment through crowdfunding and, uh, um, and uh, uh, expanded to new areas. And actually, we've only expanded outside of London um, nine months ago. But uh, over the past year, we've grown uh, 6x. So there's been a huge acceleration because everybody wanted to uh, produce or kind of food delivered to their door. So it's been, uh, we've grown the team from uh, 25 to now uh, 70 people uh, mm. in just uh, the past uh, 15 months. So you had a, you've had a crazy year. And I remember talking to Deepak, I think in May, this time last year. And he said, we, we, we've had to turn our website off. We've yeah. had to turn our social media off, not even put a holding page, just off. <laughs> and, yeah. and because the demand went crazy and we have to like. I mean, he was saying that you basically had to go and refigure out your supply chain. Like, there's there's plenty of wonky fruit quality fruit and veg, but the supply chain to get it out there was the challenge. Yeah. And there was some. He said there was some real doubt at that moment in in the team because it was like it was a big, it was a lot of pressure. But clearly, 
the result now. What are you doing? How many boxes a week are you delivering today? 50,000. 50,000? Yeah. My gosh. So at the, uh, at the start of the pandemic, we were just uh, over 10,000. And yeah. so, so uh, it, it, it was just uh, kind of the scale in just a week, actually, uh, we uh, doubled our orders and it wasn't so much new customers. It was just our existing customers. Some people were on fortnightly, moved to weekly. Some, one person ordered eight boxes uh, at one time. Uh, so it was just the uh, existing people just wanting to stockpile. Yeah. And wow. when you think about the logistics, uh, it's, it's vans. So we need to pack all of these boxes. These boxes need to be uh, go on van. And uh, so a van w- will take 150 boxes. So such an increase requires a lot of recruits. So our delivery partner and uh, packing partner had to scale really rapidly. Yeah, Gabby in the chat saying, wow, well done. Supply chain must be insane. Um, I, there's loads more questions, obviously, for you, Emily, but we're going we're gonna to carry on the stories around the circle. Um, Ashita, I'm going to come. Thank you so much for that great start. Ashita, I'm going to come to you next. Um, so by rotation, another industry, the world of fashion, huge challenges that as many of us have, have heard about. Um, how did you end up diving into this world and what have you created? So my background, um, I've I actually never worked in the fashion industry or not even formally in tech. Uh, we do position ourselves as a tech company. So we're a peer-to-peer marketplace where users can borrow and also rent items from each other's wardrobes, thereby saving the planet one rented outfit at a time uh, and looking great at the same time, you know, developing friendships and relationships with people on the app um, and obviously also, you know, saving money instead of buying a completely new outfit. Um, so I actually used to work as an investment analyst, uh, completely unrelated. Um, and the reason why I came up with this idea was because, you know, like every other, um, well, I think maybe it happens to uh, women quite often, but I was planning my honeymoon and, you know, I was thinking about all the, t- all the um, outfits that I wanted to wear on this holiday. And, um, you know, I started thinking about fashion rental and how the UK and Europe as a whole even didn't really have any fashion rental solutions out there that seemed very viable, very accessible, you know, quite modern, um, besides maybe the high street store that, you know, some places do have in the country. Um, it wasn't until the honeymoon that I actually realized that there was a lot of textile waste. Uh, so we went back to where I was born. So that's Rajasthan in India. Uh, my husband's not Indian. I kind of wanted to show him where I'm from and reconnect. And I couldn't help but feel very, um, very guilty and, 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 you know, feel that I was part of the problem that was affecting my own people, which was that I myself had bought new outfits just for this holiday. And I wasn't really sure that I was going to wear them more than 15 times. Um, apparently, the minimum number of uh, times that you have to wear an outfit until you a- have actually you know, um, got on the most use of it is 30 times. And, um, and yeah, and that's when I thought this fashion rental idea, this concept that I was thinking about, you know, what if we took it a step further and made it part of the sharing economy? Um, so kind of, you know, the analogy to Airbnb keeps coming around for lots of different industries. But yeah, really getting people. Um, so, you know, all these people that are on Instagram posting their photos, um, and you know how we're always going to events, never repeating outfits for at least another year. Um, why don't we get all these people to share what they already own and therefore, therefore also monetize their belongings? Um, so that happened uh, about two years ago when I came back from my honeymoon. 
Um, I was working at a hedge fund at the time. So what I did is I spent my evenings and my weekends creating a test platform. It was a very ugly website, um, you know, like a white label platform that we had gotten, you know, created, created it over the weekend and started going to a lot of events um, in the sustainable fashion scene to kind of understand, mm. you know, um, you know how, how much bigger this problem is beyond just, you know, wanting to wear different clothes and have access to designer fashion and, you know, kind of monetize your own belongings. Um, you know, 8% of the carbon emissions that we have in, in the entire planet that comes from the fashion and footwear industries. Um, it, it's something that we don't really realize as average consumers, but, you know, what we're wearing is actually part of the problem. Um, so, you know, as you were, you know, then you were talking to Emily about, um, it's not like, you know, I thought that I was going to come up with this entire way of disrupting the fashion industry and consumption and, you know, wanting to change the planet for the better good. Um, I actually kind of realized it over time that this could be a way to, um, to actually, yeah, really, really get people to, you know, change how they're behaving with fashion and how they're consuming fashion. It's such a wonderful story in terms of well first of all i love the fact you took your husband on on your on your honeymoon on an r&d mission for your business that's just genius um as well as reconnecting with your cultural heritage and everything else um but yeah you both you and emily have made it sound and i know because we're doing quick storytelling here but you've made both these businesses so far sound fairly straightforward and i know that anything but but that um You've given us an intro insight into how you began. How have you gone from like that pilot stage to building the tech, the community, uh, the team to make this, uh, to get it to where it is today? So I actually didn't leave my full-time job uh, for about six months, which I also, I mean, sometimes I look back at it and I thought, no, I could have stayed a bit longer. I could have earned more money and saved more money and then put it towards business. Um, but yeah, I didn't actually leave um, until we start seeing a lot of traction across the country. So not just within London or within, you know, my circle of friends. Um, and we were getting a lot of press men uh, mentions nationally. Mm. And it was, um, I was beginning to realize that there was a huge momentum for this concept of con conscious consumerism, sustainable fashion, you know, it was kind of really having its moment. And I think it, it's, it's actually, you know, the interest for sustainable fashion has only accelerated even post pandemic. So um, I didn't leave my job until after six months. And the day that I actually had my last day at work was when our final platform, which is the app that you see today, mm. free to download, by the way, if anyone wants to try it out. Um, uh, it wasn't until, yeah, we had launched the app. So I actually left on that final day. And um, I would say that one of the things that was really important to me before leaving was seeing traction um, and kind of, you know, comparing it to the opportunity cost uh, of, of staying in my existing career mm. uh, and kind of realizing that this could be actually the next big thing that has a social purpose to it. Um, and, you know, all along I wanted to, you know, have a business of my own. I was just looking for something that, really resonate it with my values and also my interests uh and yeah and that turns out it's in um it's in fashion consumption and changing it well we're glad you're doing it because there needs to be thousands of organizations like you if we're going to turn turn the problem around in both the industries that you're working in um thank you for that introduction to by rotation ashita we'll come back we've got lots more questions for you but richard we'll come to you now now you are around in the sort of early days of what we now call purposeful or impact business, I mean, it's, it's gone through so many iterations. This is a social enterprise, I guess, was the original 
you know idea that has its own legal structure around it but um you've seen it seen it through and can you i'd love to hear a little bit about how you became involved and what was the first business that you were part of yeah of course i didn't realize i was here as an elder but um, i'll take that as a, as a good thing so um yeah i was involved in 2015 um with launching the b corp movement in the uk um, which was a fantastic project to be a part of. And at the time, we set ourselves a target to find 50 B Corps for the, the launch. We thought that was a respectable number to launch with. Um, and like you said, it was it, this wasn't really a new concept. And, in, and we were slightly concerned that we were bringing like an American kind of brand mm. um, to the UK, where the UK... Corporations! Had, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of those. And and uh, the UK had led on... on, a, on, a, on a lot of this movement already. So the social enterprise movement, like you mentioned, one of the strongest communities of that in the world. Um, and big businesses kind of spoke about sustainability a lot, I think. And we, you know, had some of the leading organizations working on that. Um, and I was working for a consultancy called Volans, which was founded by Michael John Elkington, who um, coined the triple bottom line concept. So we were kind of already deep in that game. And for mm. us, becoming a B Corp was partly just to, to walk the walk because we were telling everyone else they should be acting like this. Um, and so we went around to find those 50, those 50 B Corps and they were companies who were already B Corps in, in what they did. They just didn't have the certification. And so, um, we found these companies, there were companies like Ella's kitchen, mm. um, Lily's kitchen. So quite a lot of consumer good companies who were already really doing some impressive stuff. Um, as well as a lot of like services companies, people who were like really people reliant, um, were, we were taking this really seriously and, and. We just about found the 50. I think we had like 52. Um, and then it's kind of crazy to fast forward to today where mm. I, I literally cannot keep up with, with, with who's a B Corp and who's not. I think there's 500 or so in the UK. And it seems every, every month there's like a, a, a big new announcement, be it like a brew dog or a Guardian newspaper. It's just sort yeah. of re- relentless now. And it's not a, for those that, um, and we, we, we're not going to talk about the B Corps the whole evening, but it, they are, it is a great movement as as you've just explained that kind of represents what we're you know what we're talking about tonight so what do you and it's not easy as well and the question of timing i don't know if emily and ashita have a perspective on this is when you apply to become a b core and the effort that goes into it um this is a this isn't an easy thing to to gain it's not just about having the right legal structure and the people or or your kind of in-house values in terms of how you take care of your team and then your environmental footprint is like there's it's a full exam paper of of standards so um for those of people who are listening tonight go oh should i apply to become a b corp when is when's the right time to do it and what value will it bring to your business yes yeah, so so for us actually we well, we became a b corp uh, in july so it's uh, uh it was only after uh, uh, over four years of uh, of running outbox um, and we had uh, one person who was kind of partially working on that so it's uh, it requires quite a lot of work to that's a it, big investment of, yeah. uh, for a small business yeah it's like 200 questions over 200 questions uh, plus providing uh, so we had to uh, set up quite a lot of policies so uh, because we didn't have there were a lot of things that we didn't have in place so it's it's probably uh, is not more difficult if you do it early on because you've got less processes set, so less things to change. Um, but it still uh, takes quite a lot of 
of uh, your time to go through the process. And why why have you applied to it? Because if you're uh, proving to the world that you're already running a through your transparency of communications, your metrics, your, you know, your storytelling, if you're proving to the to your customers that you are uh, running an ethical and responsible business that is changing, that's solving the problem that you're setting out to solve, why do you need to have a B Corp status? I think there's there's still a lot of greenwashing. So it's just kind of, uh, B Corp is just an external certification. Uh, so we didn't really have to make changes to the way we were operating. It was just a validation. And the uh, B Corp is not only just a one-off score. So you need to go through the process every three years to requalify. And also the expectation is that you improve your score uh, over time. So it's not staying static. Uh, uh, plus, also, you have to produce an impact report on an annual basis. So there's some expectation. Um, uh, and, and also, you're part of a community of people, uh, of businesses who have similar values. So there's, there's that kind of benefit as well. Yeah, a big accountability, great community. Uh, Sheeta, where, what's your relationship with B Corp? We actually started looking into it last year, but as Emily said, we realized that it does require a lot of processes, which we don't have at the moment, but perhaps that could be an advantage to us uh, because we are starting from scratch. But yeah, it's definitely something that we are looking at already and it's it's part of our Fantastic. agenda. Now, I wanted, there's, a, there's so many questions coming in. I want to dive straight into them coming from people and they're being upvoted in the Q&A. So Richard, coming to you first, but I'd love to hear your perspectives, Emily and Ashita as well on this. Uh, Jeru says, would love to hear more on measuring impact. With lots of brands claiming eco and social credentials, any examples of companies doing well at measuring and sharing the impact of their initiatives? So, yeah, greenwashing you've just mentioned, Emily. We even hear of sport washing, you know, and um, it, countries doing sport washing, like Saudi Arabia, for example. So this happens at all sorts of different scales. So uh, what examples or what, what advice can you give, Richard, to, to new startups about how they measure their impact and who's doing it well? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I, I think it's maybe quite important to, to make a distinction between what it means to be a responsible company and what it means to be impact-led. And so if we take the discussion we just had on, on B Corp, and you say it's a lot of questions, 200 questions, and it's looking at parts of your company which you would have never thought about. Um, and they use the expression, measure what matters. And that kind of means measure what matters to everyone. So it's, it's their generic questions, essentially. They might have some industry-specific ones, but it's about what does a, a best practice, accountable, responsible company do? And it's so many things from your hiring policies to your, the, the waste and the energy consumed in your, um, your building. And, and these are things that not every company thinks about, but they're things every company should think about if they want to be responsible. Now, that's slightly different to being impact-led. So um, in Oddbox's case, I'm sure you have metrics which are focused on how much food waste are you rescuing? And, and for uh, Ashita with by rotation, I'm sure it's how often is a garment being used. And these are things that matter only to your company. And these are to do with your, the impact that you intentionally want to create and the, your kind of your purpose, your mission. And these are metrics that you'll probably have to create, or you might have, again, another industry metric or, or certification you can get. But I think those two things are quite separate. And so, Great companies do both, right? They do the B Corp, the accountable, responsible stuff, but they also have their own metrics, which are unique to them. 
And presumably, if like the four of us were starting, a, like we were, came up with an idea today, we'd focus on the impact metric first, right? And then go, okay, now this is a thing we've got traction. Let's think about how we make sure we set up a responsible company. Is that the right way around to do it? I, I think you you do in some ways kind of both at the same time. So there's kind of so in terms of the impact, obviously for us it's it's about food waste, but we've also always thought about. Uh, how can we be sustainable in the way we do it? So from the start, so I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. From the start, we've partnered with uh, with charities, and we call them partner. We don't, uh, it's not uh, donations. Uh, and, the, uh, and for us, actually, um, they're as beneficial to us as we are to them. Because uh, we always have to overorder a bit uh, because of the fact that the produce we get are not necessarily perfect. So when we pack them into boxes, we always have some surplus. And either we could pay uh, the waste collector to uh, take this produce, which then will end up to la- in landfill, or else we, uh, we work with uh, uh, charity partners who come and collect the produce and will redistribute to soup kitchens and food banks. So, um, so actually, that's an example of uh, how we operate uh, in a way which is sustainable. Um, is it part of our impact? Not really, because it's uh, it's about uh, food poverty more than uh, than food waste. And uh, uh, again, in terms of packaging, we've always been collecting back the boxes. And uh, again, we're uh, we're either uh, so at the start we were reusing them. Now we recycle them. But again, we can we get paid for recycling these boxes. So there's both kind of, uh, and in some ways there's also both a financial benefit and uh, a sustainability benefit. And that's where kind of it's it's always more powerful when uh, impact and sustainability is part of your model instead of just being kind of some and something that you bolt on as. Uh, and by the way, we donate uh, some of our uh, profit to charities. Yeah, which when you're when you've created businesses like like you all have, that almost seems irrational, right? That mindset. So the the question is this: is that you know how do you if you're in a more established and Ishita, I would love to come to you in a second about about what how you done it do it by rotation, but. Also, how do you do this if you're an established in it? Let's say you're within an organization, you're, a, you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to change things from the inside. Um, like, how do you go about doing that? Because it's, it feels so huge to make, to turn that ship around when it's like been going in a certain direction. Um, have you seen examples of that, that Richard? Yeah. In terms of, of metric setting, I think that's, yeah, I think it's, it's, more difficult on both fronts. So you try and do the, the B Corp assessment, it's going to be more difficult, like the guys mentioned, because you've just got so many processes and if they're slightly out of line, it, who knows, it could take years to get them back in line with the, the, um, the, what's required for the certification. But in terms of setting um, um, metrics, I think this is when, when big companies try to act like startups, they do it well if they, if they set really ambitious targets. Um, and if they, if they set things which kind of imply that what's happening today isn't right, I always think that's a good judge of how serious mm-hmm. they are. Like if, if their current business model is slight, doesn't sit comfortably with their kind of their metrics or their mission statement or the way they're defining it, I think that's interesting because they're, they're kind of admitting that something needs to change. And so looking for that's always, always interesting. If it kind mm-hmm. of is a bit 
vague so that kind of come like their current business model kind of comfortably sits in, in inside their statement like some broad statement about trying to some betterment of the world then then you start to think well actually this is too comfortable and and they haven't got that same um focus and drive that, that startups have when they set these really um quite focused targeted metrics the greenwash siren starts to go off in your head exactly um but and you see it with all these net zero targets right it almost feels like oh it's uh, i saw the image of like the there's a there's a brown paper bottle or like you know a hand sanitized bottle made out of paper or cardboard and then it's like net zero target 50 percent reduction by 2030 and then of course you take the brown paper off and it's a plastic bottle inside it's like the question is always how how do you do it and this is the competitive advantage of starting from scratch is you can design it's a blank sheet of paper you can design it you've got to design it right so how do you do it ashita by rotation how do you measure your impact and your responsibility yeah, I mean, you know, we, we are about 18 months old officially, and um, I guess one of the most well-known fashion rental company in the world is probably Rent the Runaway, but mm. we've actually thrown that rule book completely out of the window because um, they are the world's largest dry cleaning facility, and that's exactly what we don't want to be. You know, we don't want fashion rental to be all about how uh, cost-effective it is just to uh, rent clothes and therefore not buy anything. It's actually more about sharing what you already own. Uh, so really getting people, so our community, to engage with the platform. You know, it is a marketplace model at the end of the day. Um, so we we have done, I would say, nudging techniques um, that we've created in-house ourselves for the time being. You know, we, we don't have any sign-offs from B Corp or, you know, we've only recently joined the Ellen MacArthur's um, Emerging Spaces mm. Network which we hope to get signed off from them. But we built this thing called the impact scale feature on our app, which essentially shows you at the checkout when you're sending a rental request to someone, um, how much textile waste, water waste, and carbon dioxide emissions you're saving by not buying an item of that same product or category. So it's kind of um, you know, research that we've done in-house for the time being, but we are looking at formalizing them with, you know, um, people such as Ellen MacArthur. Uh, but I think these are great ways to sort of, you know, get people to start thinking about how fashion rental is less about the money, but actually leaving a positive impact on the environment. Um, the other thing I'd say is that, especially when we were starting out, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, with fashion rental being a very hot topic here in the UK and Europe, um, I would say a lot of players have taken a lot of shortcuts. Uh, which is to buy inventory, you know, to have stores, um, you know, to kind of start having partners in dry cleaning. But we've kept things very simple and, you know, kept the uh, purity of purpose, which is to get people to share between themselves. Mm. Um, and so we've built a complex, you know, we've built complex technology, but a very simple solution. And that messaging hasn't changed um, since I left my my job and, you know, went full time on this which is really to get people to use what they already have and not consume more. Um, so I think there's always that trap in, um, you know, in, in wanting to sort of um, change things so you can have a bigger share of the market. But I think if you're doing it, um, you know, with sustainability in mind and sticking to the original mission and vision um, as a startup, I, I think, you know, there's definitely going to be value in it uh, long term. That's what we've seen anyway. That's great to hear. And the beauty of it, of course, is that once you've got a very clear why and mission and here's why we're doing it and here's the problem we're trying to solve, decision making, in my experience, um, has been a lot easier because you're kind of like, should we go down this path or this path? It's like, well, actually, 
that one is a is a yellow light, whereas this one's a really clear clear green light. So, um, by the way, you've just reminded me, Ashita, of a, another a friend of mine who started a really interesting tech sustainable fashion startup called Bendy. Um, I've just put it in the chat there, um, and Mandeep is building oh, something okay. which is essentially uh, it, you drop the, um, the 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 widget into existing fashion brand sites. And it will tell you the carbon footprint. So it's quite a clever bit of tech, and it will tell you how, like, the sustainable and so social and environmental impact of that garment, and then recommend it. But maybe there's a collaboration there between uh, renting and measuring the impact. Um, so yeah, this, these are the things we want to see happen. Um, another question that's got a lot of votes here. Um, let me come back to it. I think it's from Bianca. It says, "Any advice on how best to find suppliers that hold sustainable values?" So you. You both got sort of deep, complex supply chains. How do you? And this has been a big critique of, especially the fashion industry, right? Is like, oh well, we're, you know, H and M's got this conscious, you know, section of the shop which is kind of crazy, isn't it? Which means the rest of it is unconscious or bad. Eighty percent of a shop is bad because this bit's really. Anyway, so how do you know? How do you figure out your supply chain so that you can trust it a hundred percent? Uh, to be have the same values as as what you're doing. I mean, so she, in the, in, in the yeah. fashion things, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we're not taking stock ourselves. Um, so for us, um, it's more sustainable if you own it and if you're sharing it with others. So for us, you know, um, as long as someone owns it and they're getting more use of it, um, that that's you know that's how we approach that supplier issue. So our lenders on the app. Uh, when it comes to things like partnering with any sort of career service or, um, or, or, or you know, like, um, like, well, we use Clothes Doctor, which has eco-cleaning solutions. Basically, we look at any time we do any partnership or collaboration, even if it's a marketing one, it has to be really um, aligned with our values. And so we, we've been very, very careful uh, whenever we position ourselves or present ourselves with someone. And I think it's kind of built that confidence in us, even though we're so small, um, it, you know, with, with our 48,000 plus community. So we've been very, very careful. And I think it's actually a very cost-effective way of doing your branding as well, because people know exactly what kind of brand or person by rotation is. Yeah, the trust has been established and then it, the marketing becomes a lot easier. Um, Richard, supply chains, how do, you, how do you check them to make sure that they're sustainable? Or how, where do you go? Are there particular areas you can go and find sustainable suppliers in different industries? Yeah, well, I think there'll always be industry-specific, you know, certifications and bodies that 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 check these things, and and that's where certifications really are so important because nobody has the time to really investigate every single supplier and your suppliers' suppliers. It would just you wouldn't be able to do anything; you'd be completely paralysed um, unless you have people who are dedicated to doing that in your in your um, organisation. So things like that, like you know. Um, I know a lot of B Corps do collaborate together because it's just so straightforward because you're already on the same page, you speak the same language, mm. have the same values, and that's fantastic. But I think often, um, like listen to Ashita describe her business model, it's like the lightest business model ever because they don't have any stock. It's like Featherlight, it's great. So there's really less to worry about. Yeah, very smart. Um, <laughs> but I, I really, um, I like the approach that um, Veja or Veja, Veja, I never know how you say that, but the trainer brand. That everybody loves. Um, I've, I've heard their founders talk about this, and and they say they try to build the company like their their grandparents would, which is mm. in an industry like that where you do have a big 
big um, footprint in terms of your supply chain. It's like the only kind of safe thing to do is to try and build, go slowly and with a lot of care and a lot of love and trust that this, the, the, the demand and the, and the pull for your product will stay there and don't rush to meet it because actually they've actually managed to like, you know, build a bit of hype because they sometimes can't deliver on all the demand that season, but that's fine because it's, it's still there the next season. Um, and, and they've meant they haven't broken anything. They haven't made any mistakes yet. And I think that's, that's a really, really uh, commendable approach. And Emily, what about at, um, Oddbox? How have you sourced your suppliers? Yeah, so so at the start, we were not doing any checks. So for fruit and veg suppliers, it was just uh, if they had surplus or they had kind of, uh, pro- produce which were at risk of going to waste, that was our only criteria. Because for, for us, we were about food waste. And uh, so uh, we've... We've worked with uh, all types of suppliers in terms of our, uh, and for example, our delivery partner uh, still delivers with diesel vans. Uh, It's obviously not uh, ideal, and that's something that we want to change in the long term. But right now, uh, it's just not affordable enough uh, to uh, use electric vehicles. So uh, the compromise that we've uh, we've taken is that we deliver overnight when there's less traffic, and therefore uh, we reduce the carbon emissions. Mm. But that also means that uh, actually it ends up being cheaper because they do the deliveries faster. So uh, so I would say uh, there's there's a lot of things that we were not doing uh, right at the start because we were small because uh, actually we couldn't afford it and we couldn't pass on the cost uh, to uh, to our customers because at the end somebody has to pay uh, if uh, if you move to uh, a supplier who's more expensive and now we are starting to look more into our uh, energy supplier for our warehouse into kind of, uh, doing doing things better so i would i i, I would kind of say there's a lot of things that you won't be able to do at the start. Um, it's better to uh, maybe not try to do everything right. Otherwise, you're just not going to uh, to do too much. For us, it's always been kind of, uh, the faster we can scale, the more food we can save from going to waste. And actually, we've realized that in terms of our carbon footprint, uh, we avoid more emissions by rescuing produce, uh, a lot more than the emissions that we generate ourselves, even by uh, delivering by diesel van. And what we've done is we, we're optimizing the routes. So we only deliver uh, to uh, each area once a week, and there's a huge drop density. So we don't have vans going uh, from north to south London uh, uh, all night long. Uh, a van will deliver in a very small area. And that's why we can, when we expanded, we only expanded uh, fr- from area to area to make sure that we had kind of that high density and uh, we were minimizing our footprint. It's such a great example. And you've reminded me of, um, I think, one of the most important uh, books that have been written in the last five years before Richard publishes his later this year, uh, which might not seem obvious about business, but it's called, um, but it's, I think it's really helpful for this conversation we're having. It's called Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth. And we got to chat with her at Rebel Book Club. And I, we asked her, so Kate, what's the most important metric for measuring like how we how we have a, a positive impact through our economics, through business, through the economy? 
And she said, there isn't one. It's like driving a car. Like when you drive a car, you have fuel in the tank, you have a temperature gauge, you have speed, you have a dashboard of metrics. And depending on what activity you're doing or what the purpose in that moment is, whether it's acceleration or, you know, these met, all of them have to be working effectively for the car to run smoothly. Obviously, it has to have fuel in the tank or the battery has to be charged. Now we're all switching to electric. But for me, it's been a really helpful analogy to think about how you run a, a, an impact business um, because it's like it's, there isn't this one thing. It isn't just the, how much profit we're making. Um, it isn't just how many people we're positively impacting, how much food we're, we're, waste, we're saving. Um, so it's just, I, I think for everyone who's, I can see in the conversation, it's like, well, around measure, it's like you've got to figure out what your dashboard is and, and drop the vanity metrics that feel good but aren't really changing anything um, and, and zoom in on the ones that really make a difference. Um, and I wanted to ask the three of you, we've just got a few more minutes left, um, a slight, I think an uncomfortable question, or I, I find it an uncomfortable question, which is around activism. So what uh, Ashita you'll do with By Rotation and Emily you're doing with Oddbox is, is really inspiring, especially as you're, the momentum you're building. Um, but it's still like we're on the periphery, right? This is the, the problem of food waste and fashion. It is so huge. And really the things that are going to change it, it could be argued, are the regulation and the policy that only comes through through government, right? Or big corporations changing behavior. Um, so how much of our job here is to be activists versus build a, a larger customer base? So, so I think for me, actually, building a large customer base uh, will drive that change so we've kind of uh and and one of our uh, key pillars and key kpi that we've set for the next five years is uh how much our community and beyond our community people know of the link between food waste and climate change because a lot of people uh, don't really think about food waste impacting climate change so it's very much how do we uh, educate and empower our community mm. to uh, be the one kind of driving the change. And I think at the start, also, we didn't really feel that we had credibility. Uh, we didn't know much ourselves. So it's been very much a journey of uh, educating ourselves and sharing what we learned along that journey with mm. our community. So that's that's where uh, we feel that we're in a better position to be a bit, a bit more activist right now. Uh, and and potentially uh, try to be uh, in conversation with governments, uh, with uh, retailers, uh, with other actors. Um, but that's common with kind of having a bit more of that scale and a bit understanding a bit more about the problem. Great answer, Ishita. What about for you? Where does activism come into it? Yeah, I mean, I think that our community of uh, rotators, as we call them, I, I feel like they're all budding activists themselves. Um, but, you know, again, they're all just very average people who have day jobs, students, you know, housewives, you know, like, sorry, um, you know, like people, you know, we have retired people. We have all kinds of people who are on the platform and, uh, and, and everyone's getting much more sort of aware of how fashion is a problematic industry. It's something that I didn't actually realize maybe two and a half years ago before I founded By Rotation either. 
So, um, so I do think that you know we are actually driving a lot of awareness. We're educating people that fashion is a problematic industry. Consumption is you know one half of the problem, uh, and you know they can engage in in, in sort of you know small changes. Uh, you know, just by sharing with each other or sharing within our community. Um, I guess the other thing I'd also say is that, you know, as my role as a founder and, and, and CEO of Birotation, you know, I've taken a very active role in Birotation being, you know, one of the, um, I guess, one of the startups, one of the organization uh, organizations that does actually partake in a lot of these industry movements. So whether it's, you know, being part of the uh, Buy Better Advisory Council, which is getting a lot of parliamentarians to start talking about um, consuming less fashion, uh, or being involved in the sharing economy within the UK, which is like a trade body for other organizations that care about consuming less. I think, you know, um, I, I guess I, I still kind of have that time at the moment as an early stage founder to be more involved with the industry and, and you know, kind of um, try and, uh, you know, change the very antiquated industry that we're in. Um, and the last thing I'd say probably is our consumer, uh, our customer base is very, it's very Gen Z and millennial heavy. Um, and we do already see them actually being very actively involved as activists. Awesome. Richard, are you an activist? I think it's terrifying being an activist. And I was just um, reflecting on, on why activism still, when, it, when that word is mentioned, it's like, oh, now we're out of our comfort zone as, like, as business people. But um, I think when you put your head above the parapet as a company, it's, you know that the issues you're talking about are never simple and straightforward and you need to be super uh, clued up on it otherwise someone's going to try and pull you down and you, and i think we associate activism with with the kind of purpose washing sometimes because you see like pepsi trying to have kendall jenner open a pepsi in a riot and everyone is now being <laughs> calmed down like those things are cringe and and we we, we criticize those companies more. but then companies like patagonia are basically nothing and they're an, an activism company that sells a few jackets it's like it's like they've gone so far that way that it's amazing um mm. and one of the uh, companies i work with is called dame they're a um mm. sustainable period products company and they we've had these discussions about how do we step up in a major way in that space and it and it and we know that it's it's full of taboos and and nuances and and it's very difficult and what ashita said about customers leading the way is actually so true for dame so like, they've actually just run a campaign which you may have seen on a london bus if you were outside your, your house of flat for more than 10 minutes in the last few months. But they've been going around London with a picture of one of their customers with a tampon string hanging down from their pants. And that was uh, a photo that a customer posted on Instagram. And they were like, okay, you said it better than we can ever say it. Like, we're not going to try and like do a shoot, a photo shoot. It was like, we're just going to take that photo with your permission. And that's the campaign there. Um, and so I think often if you're not sure what's the right thing to do, just sort of look to your customers and, and take their guide, their guidance. And it reminds me of um, this book. We're going to, I want to hear about your book shortly, Richard, but this book that I'm reading this week called The Green Grocer, which is uh, written by the CEO of Iceland supermarket here in the UK. So £4 billion supermarket, 30,000 staff um, outside of the kind of middle class bubble. Um, and, and it's really changed a lot of, you know, this is about corporate activism and, and, so he talks about how they took palm oil out of all their own branded products. And that was a big process. Um, but it was through a partnership with Greenpeace. And then they, they tried to get this ad on TV about the story of an orangutan losing its habitat, um, a Christmas ad, um, telling the story of an orangutan losing its habitat in Indonesia because of all the palm oil. And the outcome was that they were, weren't allowed to get it on TV because it was political. 
And so he just posted it like, here's our band Christmas ad. It was viewed 80 million times. Um, and so sometimes the, your, your activism is just looking at like, what are your customers doing? What are your partners doing? What is resonating and sharing that? So great. This is a brilliant book on, on kind of impact at, at scale. But Richard, you have written a book. We well, are in the process of writing a book that could help us all tonight. What is it and when does it come out? Yeah, so so just finished writing it um, about last week, actually. So feeling very uh, relieved this week. Um, and it's called Mission Lit. And it was commissioned by a, a new flexible workspace called X and Y, who have this vision to build um, a community of, of, of companies who are all mission-driven. Um, and the, the kind of brief was, I think we know instinctively when you see a company that's kind of got some sort of magic formula where they, they seem to have the... Like, you said, Ben, about the green lights versus yellow lights. They seem to be nothing but green lights. They know exactly what they want to do. People are behind them and they have full of momentum. And it was basically, what is that? And how do we capture that? And how do we help other people understand and, and use, and use um, that formula um, for their own success? And so we just spoke to a bunch of companies that we thought kind of seemed to have this, this magic formula. And the term mission lit came from an interview actually with All Plants, um, a, the, the um, yeah. plant-based food delivery company. And their founder, JP, said, you know, our people aren't just mission driven, they're mission lit up. And I really like that. And so it was like, that's where the title comes from, mission lit. And it's this idea nice. that you are just lit up by your mission. And it impacts, of course, your, your, your purpose and, your, and the way you set your targets and metrics, but then it changes the way you run your business. You start to run it in a way that people in the, who were deep in the industry couldn't have thought about because... Um, they, they, they can't see beyond preconceived ways of doing things. And your people are more motivated and, 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 and have more freedom to, to be innovative. And then your products as a result of your, of your, your mission begin to be ahead of the market and, and really resonate with, with customers um, and create a lot of impact. And it's basically just, it's a, it's a short guidebook for entrepreneurs on, on what are the lessons from these entrepreneurs and how you sort of go through those three parts of your business, your 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 operating model, your products, and your why, and how do you sort of start to make the mission lit? It's so exciting, and I love that idea of it, not just lighting you up, but this idea of feeling alive when you're doing it. And as we were just, Emily and Ishita were just talking about, it's this, this rubs off on your customers and they become activists. And so, you know, I love, I just love supporting uh, brands and businesses that are doing this because it makes me feel good you know i'm you know get, got the allbirds on under the under the desk and and um wearing my granddad's 80 year old you know 80 year old jacket here she to so you know keep it going um and of course love the wonky fruit and veg however it, however shape it comes it tastes delicious but um this is this is what we do this is it's the most fun you can have and i remember ed gillespie from futera saying the best way to change the world is to throw a better party um, and, and like you, you've all been involved with throwing, whether it's encouraging Richard, uh, you know, hundreds of people to become B Corps now, now with your book, Emily and Deepak with your amazing, uh, wonky fruit and veg revolution that you, you've accelerated in the last year. Um, and Ashita with like getting, making renting easy and fun and sexy. And just like, these are, it's about having a better time, right? And so, um, so yeah, if you want to join the party, start a mission-led impact business, don't overcomplicate it, and uh, there's plenty of problems out there to solve. Big thank you to Richard, Emily, and Ashita. It's been wonderful talking to you, um, and uh, we're all behind you and supporting you as customers and much more. So thank you so much.
Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. You've been listening to a Virgin Startup podcast. Virgin Startup are a not-for-profit organization set up to help founders start up and thrive. Don't be shy. Let us know what you thought by leaving a review whenever you listen to your podcast. And to find more about how we can help you start and scale your business, head over to virginstartup.org. Thanks to our friends at Virgin Money, we're able to make our meetups free to attend, providing thousands of early stage founders with the support they need to start and scale businesses in the UK. Virgin Money are here to disrupt the status quo. They want everyone to have a much happier relationship with money. Through their brilliant colleagues, inspiring spaces and digital solutions, they are doing everything they can to offer a life more virgin. They provide a full range of banking products and services to help founders at every stage of their business journey. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and you'll join us next time for more founder stories. Founder stories.